This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Lucky you. Hello and welcome back to Big Mood, Little Mood. I am your host, Daniel M. Lavery, and with me in the studio this week are several guests, all of whom I'm very excited about, one of whom I'm perhaps more excited about than anything else in my life. Um, In no particular order, the guests are as follows. Zach Budrick, an environmental journalist, crime novelist, and wife guy in the D.C. area and co-host of the relationship podcast, Stim for Stim. And Charlie Stern, an artisanal zookeeper and matchmaker based in Brooklyn, New York. They're a photographer, a poet, an essayist, and a coordinator and connector of all things and people. They co-host the podcast Stim for Stim with their cockatiel Paris Geller and friend Zach Budrick. That gets me to the part where I'm really excited. Uh, Charlie, you're here with a couple of birds. I know this because when we all logged on, I said, I think I hear birds. (laughs) And you couldn't see them at first. So you could hear Paris, Paris Geller. Um, he has fans. He has his own fan base within the Stim for Stim fan base. But I saved the reveal of Mr. Bird, my geriatric rescue, in an anti-plucking shirt. Oh, my God. That he has heaven. to wear because otherwise he will make himself naked. And it has little strips of felt affixed to the front so he can pluck to his heart's content without hurting himself? Yeah. That's the best thing I've ever seen in my life. (laughs) I did not know that there existed such detail in the world of like bird harm reduction. And that just makes me really, really happy that someone gave that much thought to his comfort. Yeah, yeah. I was able to buy it online and I didn't have to commission anything. I just typed in anti-plucking vest and I had so many different options of colors. Gosh. And is he, is he like a free flying bird? Like, does he fly around the house? Is he a a particular room guy or? Um, if he could fly, he probably would get pretty far. You know, he is a very curious guy, but the only time he really flies is when Paris, who is fully flighted, um, spooks him. And then they kind of, they go off in different directions. But yeah, Mr. Bird wouldn't be able to sustain any sort of height. But yeah, Paris goes all over the place. Uh, no one has clipped wings. And I can't say no to either of them. Why would you? Yeah. You don't get a bird with a vest on it because you want to shut a lot of things down. You want <laughs> yeah. more opportunities, not fewer. I I just want them to chase their dreams. Reach for the skies. You have made my day. Reach for the stars. Reach for the stars. Reach for the skies is like when you're robbing a bank. Yeah. If it's in the sky and they want to reach for it, I say let them. If they want to commit robbery, I support it. I think Paris could, uh, you know, be a pretty good depression era bank robbery. uh, It's definitely look good in a little hat. Again, you've already bought vests for one. I'm not saying that you should try to go to a spirit Halloween and get them to make their like gun mall in 1930s gangster outfits too bird sized. But oh my god, you have no idea how much of like doll Etsy I've already trawled through because Mr. Bird is very low energy, so I can put various hats on him. 
so actually on my on my hinge profile on my dating profile i have a picture of mr bird in a cowboy hat cuz <laughs> everybody just needs to know like this is this is what's going on here i am so he also has a straw hat uh like a little farmer's hat and i've been looking into berets oh my um, god Rightly so. Yeah, yeah, but I think I need to like go to a toy store because it doesn't make any sense to like order a very tiny beret off of Etsy for six dollars and then pay six dollars in shipping. Like, I just need to like go somewhere and like fill up a tiny cart with tiny hats and then <laughs> you know. But as for Paris being an old timey bank robber he would never let me put him in a zoot suit. No, no. And to be, to be clear, I only want these, these outfits uh, on or around Mr. Bird and Paris Geller to the extent that they are okay with it. I would never want to cram them into a zoot suit when they clearly weren't feeling it. Yeah, I think Paris's ability to steal things would be more magpie-esque. <laughs> um, pickpocketing, you know, reaching into things because he's very confident. He's, he's really like a bulldozer socially. Uh, which I very much relate to. Yeah, he he would not rob a bank. He would he would actually rob a person. This is all going to you know, just carry me through the rest of the day on an actual like cloud of joy. I need you both to know that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll take our first letter. Uh, the subject is spectrum ambiguity. I'm a 23-year-old woman with autism, and I lack the quote-unquote typical behaviors more commonly associated with men on the spectrum. I'm very outgoing, and my preferred stim is balancing on the balls of my feet. Many people assume I'm neurotypical. While this misperception provides me with some advantages, it often makes social interactions challenging. As a teenager, I could navigate any interaction with ease, since I lacked the social prowess necessary to recognize the disapproval of my peers. However, I now possess just enough social acumen to perceive the scorn, anger, and disapproval of strangers, and I'm continuously encountering it for reasons I don't understand. For example, a coworker and I were cleaning up our workplace at the close of business, but the sun was still shining through the shop's several large windows. I asked, do you mind if I turn off some lights? My coworker then mocked me and demanded to know why I'd ask something so silly. I was stunned. He seemed sincerely exasperated with me, but I can't fathom what I did wrong. I've analyzed this exchange dozens of times, and my question always seems courteous and harmless. This same dynamic occurs with someone or another on what seems like a daily basis, and I can never predict their annoyance or displeasure. Each time, I doubt my modest social competence more and more, and I've begun avoiding social interaction as much as possible. Therapy may not be an option right now. What should I do? So this is this is probably the best segue um, from... Me and Paris being social bulldozers, because as an autistic person who is not a man, this totally tracks with my experience. And a lot of us have to really baptism by fire our social skills. We, we have to survive in a world that affords us no safety. So, of course, you know, maybe not so consciously, she developed these social skills out of fear because she was maybe not afforded the same support and resources as, say, a white male child diagnosed in childhood. I mean, 
she obviously understands when people react negatively to something she's said or done, uh, which, you know, the fact that that part is so honed really tells you all you need to know. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm a little too confrontational and I'm a little too blunt. And that's because I don't have a real temperate perception of other people's stimuli. Um, I feel like I go into social situations not knowing everything, but confidently blowing through things, if that makes any sense. You know, for example, male strangers in public harassing me, I'm actually more likely to have a confrontation. Um, and that is not what any other non-male would experience. Yeah, I don't want to go so far as to you know, preclude the possibility that men experience street harassment because they they can, I think, and 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 do. But I really, really take your point about, particularly for this letter writer, having had to, it sounds like, expand her repertoire of social prowess, like starting from a position of, I think people are angry with me. I think people don't approve of me. I need to figure out when those moments occur so that I can better protect myself. Yeah. Um, and without trying to suggest, like, that part of me wants to say, you know, maybe your coworker was just having a bad day or you don't always have to assume that just because someone reacts to you with disapproval that they're in the right and you're in the wrong. But it's also clear that this is affecting her ability to trust herself, to trust other people, to socialize in the way that she might like to. Um, and so I don't, I don't want to, I think, then err too, too far on the side of like, forget him. He's probably just being a jerk. That is a polite question to have asked. Although I do want to just confirm, you know, letter writer, that's a perfectly normal, polite question to ask of a coworker. That's fine. Yeah. And uh, this is, you know, obviously something that I have both as uh, as a cis man in general and as someone who was diagnosed uh, fairly early in life, I've had to contend with less. But I mean, I do definitely understand uh, this idea that you know, everybody knows more than me. Therefore, if there's a disagreement about something, the other person must be in the right. But, you know, it's it was a really useful both in terms of making me less anxious and sort of necessary for survival to accept that, you know, it's it's entirely possible that someone is just being a dick. Like, it sucks when that's the case, but that's always a possibility. And, and I went through this whole period uh, where I figured that you know, everybody must uh, be in the right if they had some sort of uh, disagreement with me. And uh, it's just that I can just uh, really stick you in one place if you get too hung up on that. And and by you, I more mean me because I don't want to sound like I'm scolding or anything. And I don't want to be like, I would, I don't want to be like the Troy McClure, get confident, stupid, because it's way, way more complex than that. But I do think that, you know, sometimes the first step is to acknowledge that, uh, your starting point should be, okay, so assuming that I am the worst, least competent person in the world, 
we should then extrapolate that everybody around you is a fallible human as well. You're all starting on a level, a level playing field as far as that goes. Yeah, um, I think as autistic people, we all start from this place of not considering ourselves full humans, full people mm-hmm. with needs who have the capacity to be harmed uh, because we're kind of assuming that everyone that rules exist and everyone else has those rules and we were not provided with them. Whereas, you know, everyone is being taught rules all the time, us included. Um, and I'm sure this person's friends, family, coworkers, et cetera, I'm sure they admire her for her confidence. And this was just a, a, a tiny little hiccup um, where she was too confident and she was met with shaky footing. Um, yeah, I mean, I also racked my brain um, and asked myself what was wrong with her question. And I think it was the implication of intimacy, whether romantic or not, because, you know, it's kind of, let's lower the lights and relax. You know, let's lower the lights and, and kick back or, you know, whatever. Um, I'm picturing coffee shops I've worked in where, you know, you, you want to shut everything down. You want to look closed from the outside. So no one like bangs on the door, but yeah, for some reason, making things darker, making a situation and a room darker with someone else in there makes it more intense and makes it more intimate. So that's, that's what I think happened that's the awkwardness maybe that occurred that's really interesting my i i also really had to rack my brains because again it just struck me as like an incredibly innocuous question right which even if i didn't understand it i'd say sure um my only thought there was that you know if her coworker is like generally not a very thoughtful person he the reason he called the question silly might have been uh he thought it was wrong or foolish to um take him into consideration like just turn off the lights if if it's too bright in here don't ask me for permission i either way i do agree with the greater point which is like she she's already spent a lot of time like obsessing over this and so i do want to shepherd us away from that just because i think like sometimes coworkers especially if they're also in their 20s um can just be rude like maybe he's just kind of a rude guy or was having a bad day so I think one of the things that can be really hard is she's at this stage where now she's like, okay, I think I have enough like awareness that I can register disapproval, but that's kind of the wavelength I'm most attuned to. So it's it's the thing I notice the most. It's the thing I fear the most. And that's not to say or suggest, letter writer, that you're off base. Like, I don't want to say, I'm sure you've been reading this wrong and everyone's actually really enjoying your company because that would, I think, be destabilizing. And also, you know your daily circumstances better than I do. But I noticed, letter writer, you say that you're very outgoing and that this mostly comes from strangers. Um, you do mention this coworker who obviously is not a total stranger to you, but neither is he, I assume, a close friend. And so I wonder if part of the opportunity for you here is, and again, you don't say much about your friendship, so I don't know if you have lots and lots of close friends or if you just graduated college and moved away and everyone's sort of far flung, but if there are friends um, or relatives in your life who you generally feel fairly comfortable with or who don't usually seem to be registering disapproval or, or frustration, um, 
not to ask them for advice, because again, I think that would maybe send you further down that spiral of how can I perfectly fix my behavior so that no one's ever unkind to me. Um, but to just share some of this so that you can kind of say, I feel like lately I'm picking up on a lot of disapproval from other people. It makes me feel off balance. It makes me feel isolated. It makes me feel afraid of connecting with other people. And I don't like that. Um, and that that way you can get some more support from people who aren't strangers or rude coworkers. Does that seem like a good place to start? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Sometimes you need to be talked down. Um, sometimes you need to like have an insane rant that you're directing at someone who cares about you. You know, sometimes you have to have this insane vomit of emotions coming out, you know? Um, And then an hour and a half later, you're like, oh, that was just me going through some shit. And then you're fine. You know, I just just did this last night with, with my best friend. I had a very Maria Bamford-esque sort of uh, manic uh, dread about how as a freelancer, you are just doing six jobs around the clock. I like was so overwhelmed by that, that I said some really insane shit. Like, I was like, I don't feel like I belong to the human world, Um, (laughs) which is just psychotic. Um, I was barely tethered to, to reality. Uh, but you know, hopefully she has that kind of person who will listen to her obsess because, you know, she has been obsessing probably alone. I think she needs to go through to, you know, talk through this obsessing, make this small cycle somewhat larger and easier to manage and less weighty by, by letting someone in on it. Yeah. And uh, by the same token, I, uh, obviously a romantic partner is not the only option for something like this, but part of why my wife and I vibe so well is that only one of us, uh, pan panics at the time. So the other one is always there to, uh, help talk the other one down. And I don't know if that was just the type of people we respectively were before we found each other, or if it's just how our personal chemistry has evolved. But if you have a similar vibe with someone, either someone you know romantically or platonically, I think that that can be a really important thing, particularly uh, if you find yourself having episodes of this nature. Yeah. So I think something happens in humans' brains where if there are two of you and one of you is nervous about killing the bug or calling the doctor or pizza delivery place on the phone, the other person will rise up. And I don't know how we can explain that psychologically or neurologically, but I think, Zach, in terms of you and your wife... I think you trade off and rise to the occasion because in any situation, one of you has to kill the bug and one of you gets to be scared and one of you has to make the phone call and one of you gets to be scared and it trades off, you know? Yeah. And I think to that end, you know, the letter writer doesn't mention whether any of her friends are also like on the spectrum um, or consider themselves neurodivergent, but that might also be another place to start looking for some sense of like solidarity and useful discussion is 
to try to cultivate more of those relationships, um, which I realize is sometimes more easily said than done, but to sort of make a point of it and to sort of seek out, like, where do people like me go to meet other people and to talk amongst ourselves? The last thing that I'll say, because I want to make sure we get enough time to spend on the other letters, is because the letter writer mentions, you know, I'm a young woman and these interactions are mostly with strangers. Charlie, you, you mentioned street harassment earlier, and I'm just wondering, it is possible that if most of the, like, bewildering or sort of hostile moments that she's getting are from male strangers, it could very well be a part of street harassment um, and possibly exacerbated by her engaging in a way that doesn't fit their script. Um, Mm -hmm. And so that's just one possibility to consider, letter writer, is maybe some of these strangers are not people you were ever going to be having a good interaction with um, because they're trying to harass you. So that, again, not not to set off like paranoid alarm bells, but that may also be one possible um, explanation rather than just, gosh, I'm really missing something. Yeah, I think as autistic people, we try to strive for what is fair and no one else in these interactions are worried about that, especially like street harassers, literally abusers. Yeah, and it's an, I think the uh, empathy and our tendency to have like an above average amount capacity for it is part of this too, because I think that this, people like the letter writer may be uh, worrying a lot about the feelings of someone who has been a dick to them. And, you know, I think that if you are able to have those kinds of relationships with other people on the spectrum, they may, either they may not think that that instinct, they won't think that instinct on your part is silly, but they'll also recognize it as something that can get you down a rabbit hole and uh, help caution you out of that as well. All right. So uh, with that, I'll take us into our second letter. The subject is transference disaster. I'm a 46-year-old woman who works in a counseling-related field. It took me a long time to trust my excellent therapist. I then did the whole disastrous textbook, fall in love with my therapist thing. We worked on a lot of old stuff that I didn't realize was still affecting me for almost five years of weekly sessions. When I got to the point where all I did was argue with him, I knew it was time to end our sessions. That was six years ago. I'm still in love with him, but it doesn't hurt as much. I know I would benefit from finding someone to talk to, but I'm afraid I will go through this whole thing again and be in love with two therapists. I have tried one to three sessions with other therapists, but I always compare them to him. Him is capitalized, and trust isn't easy anyways. Also, when I was in therapy, it felt like that was all I did. I journaled, worked hard, reflected, and was really wrapped up in it. Suggestions? I can um, start just by saying, you know, I, I have a lot of affection for this letter writer. This is just a very, like, sort of candid, like, here's the energy that I bring to therapy. I go hard. I journal. kind of takes over my life in some ways. And then I, I fight and fall in love with my therapist, and it's a lot. And I kind of want to do it again, but I'm kind of scared. And I, I think if nothing else, they sound fairly self-aware, mm-hmm. which is a good starting point. Absolutely. And, you know, for for whatever it's worth, letter writer, transference doesn't always have to involve uh, falling in, in love with your therapist. It, it can also have to do with sort of um, 
you know, redirecting feelings or desires about another sort of formative relationship towards the therapist. So not to say like, good news, you could, you could have transference with your next therapist and hate them. Um, but it it is, it is not just, um, developing a romantic fixation or romantic feelings for them. Um, so that's something I suppose just to be aware of as you consider your possible options. Yeah. I, I think transference happens at any age because you could very well start seeing, you know, for example, your English teacher as a parental figure, um, or you could see your French teacher as some sort of uh, scolding authority that you start resenting and it's not their fault at all. That's, that's where my mind went to was those memes about, um, being gay in school and like, you know, uh, being supported by your entire English department. Like, I think that I haven't lived this situation, of course, but I'm trying to parse through it in ways I more understand, I think. Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense. And something that, uh, Charlie and I have talked about, not just uh, in the context of this question, but in terms of human relationships a lot, is that, you know, we didn't get a specific timeline on this, but like at that slowly emerging from lockdown, possibly temporarily, who knows, there's a lot that we're sort of having to relearn about human relationships and our closeness with the people that we see on a regular basis. Since, you know, we may have been completely isolated for however long or with like one single person who we were already living with for however long. And so I think that it's good to be self-aware about this, but I also think that you should go easy on yourself in terms of there being a learning curve in terms of, you know, how we relate to each other again. Yeah. And I worry for this person. Um working in a counseling-related field. I think that's a really important aspect of this because they're almost a mechanic. You know, they are seeing too much of the inner workings. And I think that might hinder their ability to work collaboratively with other therapists. You know, clearly this therapist was their favorite for, for many different reasons. And I imagine when you're in the field, you know, finding people you can relate to and unload on, you know, as, as your personal therapist, I'm, I'm sure it's impossible. So I really feel for them, you know, they might know too much. Um, and that really will impede them, um, trying to find someone to work with, you know, interpersonally. It's like, uh, if you're, if your job is special effects guy, you might not be able to just shut your brain off and enjoy a movie the way you normally would. That's such a, that's such a good metaphor. That's exactly it. Yeah. I think I have a couple of sort of specific suggestions for this letter writer. Um, One of them is perhaps a little obvious, but you know, if you don't feel really ready for therapy, that's fine. You know, you don't have to be in therapy. You say that you think you would benefit from it, but it doesn't sound like it feels urgent. Um, So one thing you might want to do is just even write down like a a few paragraphs or like in, in a bullet form, like, you know, what 
sounds exciting about going back to therapy? What sounds scary? What might I do if I encountered any of my fears? What options might be available to me? And are there any other ways that I can try to meet some of those needs um, without necessarily starting that process back up again? Are there other people I can talk to, you know, not as regularly and not with the same sort of intensive and, and professionalized relationship, but are there other people in my life I can talk to some of the time about some of this? Would that serve me well? Um, such that you you might find, oh yeah, I would benefit from someone to talk to. It doesn't have to be a therapist right now. Um, and that would be one way forward. Uh, another would be, you know, the thing that's sort of on your side here is that transference in therapy is like a very well understood phenomenon. It goes back to sort of like the origins of like psychoanalysis and and therapy as as a as a relationship that gets studied. So um it doesn't s- sound like this letter writer discussed those feelings with her therapist. She may have, but she doesn't say anything about whether the arguing had to do with like an explicit avowal of transference or whether it was sort of like, because I don't feel like I can talk about my romantic feelings for my therapist. Instead, we're just going to have these big intense arguments. So I don't want to assume one way or the other, but if you were to seek out another therapist, you know, now or in the medium term future, one of the things that I would encourage you to say upfront, letter writer, is it's been a long time since I was last in therapy. Um, I, I handled it in a very intense way last time. Sometimes it felt too overwhelming. So that's one of the things that I want to sort of be careful about this time around. I don't want it to become my sort of daily focus. Um, and the other thing was I developed really strong romantic feelings for my last therapist, which persist to this day. Um, and so that's something that I would need to be able to like talk about. Um, that's not wrong. That's not against the rules. Um, certainly there are like ethical standards that therapists need to abide by. So, you know, if you had any therapist who was like, oh, great, I've been looking for someone to go out with, you know, that would be a sign to like yeah. run for the hills and also maybe write a letter <laughs> to their uh, local board. But um, you can absolutely say I've had trouble with transference in the past. Your therapist, a good therapist, will be able to talk to you about that, will understand it, will not be terrified by it. Um, and there are ways that people can work through it, discuss it, not let it swallow up their their whole lives. So that would be my advice to you. If you do pursue therapy, um, mention transference up front um, and talk with your therapist about how you two might want to handle that possibility. Um, and then the other thing would be, you know, uh, it's fine if you compare these therapists to your last therapist. That doesn't mean that they're bad or that you won't get anything out of it. So don't, don't think if you meet a new therapist and you mentally make the comparison that that's a sign that you don't have this magic spark. Um, It's to be expected rather than assign things are bad. Um, And the other thing is, you know, trust isn't easy. And I would say, again, that's okay. You you shouldn't, I mean, you should feel a general sense of trustworthiness from your therapist in as much as like, you know, I believe they graduated from the institute they say they graduated from. I believe that they will show up on time and treat me like with respect. But, you know, one to three sessions in, of course, you're not going to have the same level of trust that you did with a therapist you've been seeing weekly for five years. That is to be expected. Trust takes time to build. So, you know, if you meet with someone once and you think they seem okay, I didn't feel overwhelmingly powerfully about them and they don't compare to this person I had this really intense, important relationship with for half a decade, that's not a sign that this is a bad therapist or that you're doing something wrong. And again, I think sometimes people, when they see therapists, they they think of them as like these really fragile creatures. Like, oh, if I say something to my therapist about how I think about them, they'll fall apart or say like, why would you say that to me? Like they're 
their job is thinking about the therapeutic relationship. They can handle it. If if you say something that's too much for them, they will go talk to their own therapist about it, you know? So you can, I think, really trust that if you say something like, I'm not really sure about our chemistry yet, or I'm not really sure that I trust you yet, or I'm worried of developing transference with you, that your therapist will not be like, wow, this is the first time anyone's ever said that to me. I'm really freaked out. Oh, you need to go. a form for that. That's, yeah, they got a form for that. Yeah, and and furthermore, I think you will miss the intensity. You will miss the adrenaline, uh, but that wasn't a good thing. It was an exciting thing to some extent. You know, you were hooked on this very intense relationship, uh, but don't, don't look for that spice, you know, in in new relationships uh, because, wow, you, you don't want to get caught on the roller coaster your entire life. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So good luck. Please do write back if you get the chance letter writer. I would love to hear a few months from now, uh, either if you've been able to find a therapist you're ready to start working with for a little while or whether you decide to turn some of that energy into your other relationships. I'd love to know how that's going. Um, so, so if you get a chance, please send us an update. I would love to take a little time if you two are amenable, um, especially in light of the first letter, because part of me wanted to suggest, like, you should listen to Stim for Stim. <laughs> yeah. um, I would love to hear a little bit about your podcast and how you two started working together and what sure. it's been like. Uh, well, first of all, Paris is here. Um, Paris Geller. Hi, you've Paris. Been, you've been hearing him. Um, he's very vocal. I mean, this show came out of the pandemic. You know, we are reaching across this void. Um, and luckily we have found something that is fulfilling for the two of us as, as friends, but the way we came together, uh, originally was when a mutual friend of ours, um, passed away. Um, and we were reaching across the void in that situation. You know, Zach was in DC where our friend had, had moved and, um, she was Zach's coworker and she, was my friend from college, uh, a couple years older than me. So I was still in North Carolina and desperately connecting to everyone that we knew locally and literally like, you know, screaming and crying in the streets. I remember, you know, a friend of mine just like pulled up to the block where I was staying and like just got out of her car and, and like ran up to me and, and, and we hugged in the street, like that sort of like world ending despair. And so it feels, it feels very appropriate that we started doing the show during such a monumentally fucked up, uh, world event. And uh, another thing that led us to decide that it should be the two of us specifically is because now I, I will have been married uh, nine years in September, whereas uh, Charlie is, you identify as Polly, I think it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so yeah, I think we may have mentioned in our intro email that part of what set us off was this uh, Netflix series, Love on the Spectrum, that we felt like handled uh, the idea of 
uh, dating and romantic relationships on the spectrum in a way that really infantilized them and uh, just really acted like the only uh, the, the only way to uh, affirm anything of that nature to get started is like this almost like Amish like setup where adults are being set up with other adults through their parents and just by our very existence and, you know, our respective uh, relationships that I, we felt like, you know, we, we put the lie uh, to this reductive portrait of what it's like to, to be in love or just in lust and on the spectrum. And so we felt like by the fact of our existence, we sort of demonstrate that the community such as it is contains multitudes. Yeah. And, and to clarify, um, Zach is monogamously married uh, with mm-hmm. someone he's been with forever. And I am currently single. Uh, I am polyamorous and have been similarly since forever. But we've had, we've had people on the podcast who are in open marriages. We've had people going through divorces. You know, we've had people just dating around. And the, um, the sort of like, structure that was laid bare with love on the spectrum is that as an autistic person becoming monogamously married is the only way to win it's the only way to get redemption as as a person it is the only way to get wholeness as a person um so the two of us you know hosting this podcast it's like Zach has won you know, quote unquote, I'm doing air quotes. Um, and I have quote unquote lost because, you know, what am I doing wrong? I'm not married by now. Um, you know, we've had every spectrum of quote unquote losing on our podcast. And as Zach said, our communities contain multitudes. Um, no autistic person is the same as the next autistic person. And we, we really wanted to counter this narrative, this very um, puritanical blueprint that has been laid out for us. And, and that was really, really highlighted through Love on the Spectrum, this idea that we are eternally, perpetually children. You know, autistic people can't grow up and their best bet is to get married off. And this is honestly, sometimes it's been kind of frustrating, kind of trying to do press for the podcast as well, because like so many people think they understand the premise and they approach, approach it like, uh, it's the amazing married autistic man and friend when that yeah. <laughs> is, uh, when no, we're, we're doing like what Charlie just described. We're trying to, uh, like speak to the, diversity of the human experience within the autism community. Yeah, we actually had a journalist approach us for an interview that never became anything. Um, And Zach was treated like the adult and treated like my handler and also Mm. treated like he runs the podcast. And I am just a bratty child. It was so strange. It was so Mm. strange. So, you know, people don't know how to interpret our narrative flipping. It's, it's very interesting to watch. Yeah. There's something so 
strange and surreal about a relationship that you have in your own life. And I'm, I refer here specifically to your friendship and professional relationship where you understand it. I, I take it to be like a pretty equitable one with a lot of give and take. And then for other people to approach that relationship with their own view on your dynamic and to think, I have no idea where, or rather, you know, I get where they're getting this idea from in terms of like cultural context, but like, where did you find that in any of the things that we have written or said together? Because we are not bringing this to the table. And I, I, I don't know if this has been your experience, but attempting to even gently correct people on those sort of mistaken assumptions, um, they can get quite defensive or, or uh, sort of caught up in denial about it. Uh, which is really unusual, I think, especially because Zach doesn't even have any birds. Like in terms <laughs> of bird ownership and like bird handling, I, I hate to say it, Zach, but like you are way behind. Bottom percentile, easily. Though he is getting a chihuahua. Isn't that correct? On, on Saturday, yeah. It is one of the more bird-like dogs. I will absolutely say a chihuahua Very bird-like. is as close to a bird <laughs> as you can get while still being a dog. That's very exciting. Congratulations. Thank you. I saw an Italian greyhound yesterday when I was walking around in Soho. And that was so frail and so bird-boned that it really did remind (laughs) me of Mr. Bird. Like, it was probably a young Italian greyhound, but it reminded me of my geriatric bird. Something to keep in mind, Zach, if you ever decide to get a second dog, which you know I always endorse. Oh, God. I have, uh, l- l- listen, I have two senior cats that I don't think are going to kill the Chihuahua, but are absolutely going to want to play less than she is. So I I think I'll take this a step at a time. But Say no more. Yeah. But in terms of co-hosts, there are my bird co-hosts with me today. So so more more of Stim for Stim is from my household. because. Paris Geller, the great orator, lives here. (laughs) Two-thirds. Zach and Charlie and Paris and Mr. Bird, thank you so much for taking some time today to answer these questions. I I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Of course, yeah. We had a great time. Thank you so much for thinking of us. Yeah, and if people wanted to perhaps end this podcast by listening to an episode of your podcast, what might be a way for them to go about uh, finding you? We are on Twitter at STIM number four, STIM. And we are on all the major podcast platforms, I believe. We're on uh, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, uh, Player FM, I think. That's the one I use. I don't know if it's considered a major one. Beautiful. Well, thank you again both so much. Have a fabulous rest of the day. Uh, get more birds, get more dogs. That's, that's the last of my advice. Thanks for joining us on Big Mood, Little Mood with me, Danny Lavery. Our producer is Phil Circus, who also composed our theme music. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash mood to sign up to subscribe or hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're using right now. Also, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you get a minute. We'd love to know what you think. If you want more Big Mood, Little Mood, you should join Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. Members get an extra episode of Big Mood, Little Mood every Friday, and you'll get to hear more advice and conversations and interview questions with our guests. And as a Slate Plus member, you'll also be supporting the show. Go to slate.com forward slash mood plus to sign up. It's just $1 for your first month. 
If you need some little advice or big advice and you'd like me to read your letter on the show, head to slate.com slash mood to find our big mood, little mood listener question form or find a link in the description of the platform you're using right now. Thanks for listening. And here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. My other thought in this letter was, it's a foregone conclusion that I'll be rejected fairly often, which I hope is not the case, letter writer. I think there's reason to believe that that will not be your primary experience, but I don't want to discount that possibility entirely. But you say guys who would otherwise make great romantic partners. But then later in in the next sentence, you say, how do I balance disclosing something so personal and potentially damaging too early to possibly vicious assholes? And I, I do think that kind of answers part of that question. Like the fear is if I disclose too early, guys who would otherwise have made great boyfriends will reject me. But I think even if you don't want to go so far as to say that they're all going to be vicious assholes, like I think it's safe to say that a guy who would reject you if he really liked you and heard that you were HIV positive is at the very least not going to make a great romantic partner. To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash mood.